It's good to be with you this morning and continue our series in 1 John. Uh, and I want to uh, start off by talking about something that's been going on. Maybe you've heard this word deconstruction. Deconstruction has become a buzzword among Christians, and it typically means basically a critical re-examination of kind of the underpinnings of Christianity, how Christianity is kind of put together in order to pull it apart and look for potential um, inadequacies, be it so the way in which it can deal with social issues or uh, oftentimes it's spurned by some kind of moral failure by pastors, and it's like, what's going on here? What are we a part of here? And of course, it's good and healthy for Christians to, uh, as with any movement or any people, to be self-critical. Um, but there is a question, which is, how do we know if we're going to pull apart Christianity that when we put it back together, what we'll have is actually Christianity and not just our own kind of cultural moment with Jesus slapped on it? Does that make sense? Like, how do you know, in other words, that, that you have Christianity? Are there essential truths at the heart of Christianity that in any given cultural moment or time makes Christianity what Christianity is? Or is Christianity just a, just a wax nose that you just move around and put it wherever, uh, whatever's going on um, and however you want to shape it based on the cultural questions? Well, this is where our current series in 1 John gains traction, in particular today's text. The epistle of John, um, these are the last pieces of writing added to the New Testament. So 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And they're written by John, who is an aging apostle. Uh, he's the last living uh, apostle. Apostles were those that were with Jesus Christ, that were sent directly by, from Jesus Christ out to bring the message, uh, his message out into the world. He's in his 80s and his 90s. You can kind of hear it when he says, my little children, right? So he's kind of... It's, and, he kind of sounds kind of like this, this kind of grandpa, uh, in a way, kind of just talking very sagaciously. And those of you who have taken up Josh's challenge to read through 1 John have noticed this about 1 John. Uh, it's just this kind of like really, this, this, this words of a sage. And he says things in such kind of poetic but deep ways, you know. So I was thinking about this this week, and it just dawned on me that the Apostle John's simple yet profound prose reminds me of another great sage that you might be aware of. Yes, I'm, that's a little switch there from deconstruction to uh, Yoda there. But anyways, yeah, like I, I've become convinced that, that uh, George Lucas actually read through 1 John in order to produce Yoda. Mmm, walk in the light, must we? For he who walks in darkness, the truth has he not. Like it's kind of like this profound, I practice that, I really did practice that. I admit, I admit I was practicing that, so I actually kind of lost my voice practicing. I told my wife, like, if I need water, bring it up. So um, anyways, uh, but I love this about 1 John because it has this kind of like profound sagacity to it. Is that a word? I just made it. So there you go. Um, and, uh, and so that's what's one of the things that, that I just love about 1 John. Um, so two weeks ago, before Mother's Day and that wonderful message by Brent on Ruth, um, uh, we kicked off this series, and today we're going to continue on in 1 John 1, 5 to 2, 2, which was just read beautifully, so thank you for that. So, with no further ado, let's jump into today's incredible text, 1 John 1, 5 to 2, 2, and he starts right off, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Notice how John begins by qualifying the message he is about to bring. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. Who's the we? The we is the apostles, okay? 
What is the message? It is the message that Jesus, the Word made flesh, the one in verses 1 to 4, the one they touched, who they've seen with their eyes, the one that they, they had that first person encounter with Jesus. They walked with him. They know his mind. They know what he thinks. And John wants to let us know that what he's about to deliver to us is axiological, fundamental Christianity 101, without which you're lost, okay? And that's where John's going. Right off the bat, he wants us to know that this is an apostolic message that has been proclaimed. This isn't just his own version. And so that's where he's going. This is bedrock faith. You know, one can invent anything they want and say it came from the lips of Jesus, but this is touchstone stuff. This is apostolic teaching. This is what is foundational. And what is it? What is it that's foundational? And then John tells us that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So, after moving from the introduction, John starts his epistle with a statement. And what is that statement about? It's a statement about the nature of God. This is what is, I I love this, this is wonderful. It's often been said that the mark of modern theology is it's a lot of people talking about man in a loud voice, such that you think you're hearing about God. John starts right off the bat, and, there's, and he doesn't mix any words. This is what God is like. And he tells us that God is light. God is light. So what does he mean by that? Is God light? Is God literally light? Well, this is clearly an analogy, right? It's an analogy, but it's a special analogy. And by the way, when we think about analogies, that doesn't mean that John's just kind of like, you know, trying to pull things out of his hat. When, 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 uh, when God tells us, through the apostolic writer, through his son, and through John, that he is light, we need to remember that God is also the one who created light. You see, God populated a world filled with show and tell such that we could know what he is like. And so all the analogies of God that we find, actually, when we say God is like a father, or when we say that you know, God is, God is uh, like a mighty wind, or all these things, like God was using these analogies so that we could know more about who he is. We, have, we live in a God-populated world where his analogies are all over, and then God particularly pulls them out. So God is light. Now, there's two aspects to this analogy, and one of the ways in which you can understand what we're going for here in saying that God is light is right there. And in him is no darkness at all. And the point is, is that God has moral brilliance. His goodness is absolute and it's stunning, He has this level of uh, just absolute righteousness. There's not one moral flaw in God. God has never lied, never been tempted to lie. You could just name all the things you can do wrong. God is absolute and stunning goodness. And his absolute morality, his moral, absolute moral perfection is sin qua non. That means there's nothing like it anywhere. That's God. God is light. There's no darkness. So that's one thing, that God is moral perfection. But the second thing is, is that God is light also reveals that God is a God who reveals himself. God has the power to reveal. What does light do? It reveals. When you walk into a room, you don't got any light, you're in trouble. You turn on the lights, you're not stumbling around like I did this morning when I kicked the cat. Like you need light, okay? And light reveals what's going on. So God has the power to reveal. And we're going to see that in the text here. God has power to reveal. God has power to reveal himself. And only God can reveal God's self. And God has the power to reveal ourselves, and that's, what, and that's what happens in confession. God, actually, if the Holy Spirit's working, we actually see things about ourselves, and God has the power to reveal each other. 
Okay, that's John's going to go there. It's really cool. Um, so those are the two things that we mean when we say that God is light. God has uh, these kind of two powers. All right. Um, now, I want to say something else about this, which is just so cool, this statement, God is light. This is one of four, there's, there's some teaching this morning, is that okay? I'm kind, kind of Dr. Cavolo is showing up at the pulpit this morning, if that's okay. There's four things happening, all right, in here. There's four, not four things happening, there's four kinds of statements like this in the Bible where you say God is blank. These are called anarthrous statements, N-A-N-A-R-T-H-R-O-U-S. I had to... Um, uh, look that up when I came across it in a commentary. I'm like, oh, that's cool. It just simply means it's, it's a statement without an article. Now, three of these statements we're going to find in uh, John, uh, in John's epistle. God is light is right off at the, at, the, at the beginning. Halfway through, God is love. And then we see God is spirit. And then Hebrews tells us God is a consuming fire. So these are kind of foundational, fundamental, axiological truths about God that he's giving us. And maybe one way to think about these is like a compass, like the north, south, east, west. You know, when you say God is light, it speaks to his moral purity and his power to reveal. When we say God is love, it speaks to his gracious, powerful, unstoppable benevolence. We were just singing about God's love. God is spirit speaks to God's omnipresent ubiquity. There is no place. Where can I go from your spirit, O Lord? And we say God is a consuming fire. We mean God is absolute holiness and transcendent power. God is the metaphysical center and cauldron of all that exists, such that if you got too close to God, you would dissolve. All right? So these are really important. These are kind of fundamental statements, these anarthrous statements in the Bible. Now, I know this to be true because I Actually, it takes a thief to, to catch a thief. I've done this myself. It's very tempting for us to kind of latch on to one quality of God and kind of make that kind of like, you know, this is the God that I kind of like. I'm going to hold on to that God. And, and it's even more tempting. I've heard people say this, you know, God, you know, has power. You know, God has this, God has that, but God is love. Well, actually, God is also light and God is a consuming fire. And this temptation to kind of like reduce everything down to one fundamental kind of rock bottom thing about God, that's a very enlightenment. If you look at the history of the way in which we know, I won't go into this whole thing right now, but since the enlightenment, we tend to look for this one thing that is the very foundation of all knowledge. I think, therefore, I am, Descartes said. That was the enlightenment quest. But if you take that approach when it comes to who God is, the results will be catastrophic. To hold up one attribute of who God is is to destroy the theological compass that the Bible gives, and it leaves us unable to find the true and living God. And my question right off the bat is this, do you want to find the true and living God? This is one of the greatest dangers in the Bible, is idolatry. It's mentioned again and again and again. And the reason is, is because our natural disposition even without the enlightenment, is to shape a God that we like. And so you hear all the time, like, I believe in a God of love. I heard that, actually, when, during our Good Friday service when people were coming in and they came out and they felt a little challenged by this idea that God would die. They said, I believe in a God of love. And, of course, you know, what they really mean is, I believe in a God who's not going to meddle with my life, and that was a little bit scary. All right? Do you believe in a God with the kind of love we just sang about? 
that chases you down, that won't give up, the kind of God that, that has the kind of love that just is unstoppable. C.S. Lewis says, you asked for a loving God, you have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoke is not some senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy. Oh, I just want you to be happy. Everybody be happy in your own way. Oh, that's what you like. That's cool. Not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, not the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of the guests. You know, God's not your hotel manager. But the love that made the worlds, persistent as the artist's love for his work and despotic as a man's love for a dog and provident and venerable as a father's love for a child and jealous and inexorable and exacting as the love between the sexes. Are you open to that kind of God? Do you want the true and living God? Because that kind of God is worthy of worship and that kind of God is scary. And John starts off right off the bat and saying, God is light. Let's talk about the true and the living God. And God's moral perfection and beauty, if we really take it serious, it is awe-inspiring if you're aware of yourself. And the more you become aware of God's goodness and awe-inspiring morality, the more you become aware of your own sinfulness. That's kind of where we're going. So, John, the reason I'm hitting this point is because John is going to build everything off of this statement that God is light. So this is all going to come out of this. So we've got to hit this well, right? So John doesn't start with some toothless God who isn't going to meddle. John starts off right off the bat. God is light, impenetrable, unimmeasurable, unimaginable perfection and righteousness. And, uh, you know, this is important. A.W. Tozer says, the gravest question is always God himself. For we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. And the person that says, oh, no, no, I believe in a God and love, they actually are recognizing what A.W. Tozer says, which is they know that there's serious stakes for what you say God is. They're recognizing that, wait, if I believe in a God like that, that could require some changes in my life. And that's the whole point. John knows the power of the claim that God is morally brilliant and astounding and perfect he recognizes that has serious freight. So in the next section, he's going to draw exactly the implications of such a God through a series of if-then statements. Um, so in quick succession, John is going to give these series of if-then statements, starting in verse 6, going all the way to 2-2. Two, two. And he does it very interesting. He starts with some negative if-then statements, and then these are followed by corresponding positive if-then statements. So John gives us the bad news first. Okay, so, all right, gives the bad news first. That's, that's fair. All right, so let's start with the negative if-then statements. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, then is not in there, but it's implied. We lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, then we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So these are all, I'm calling this life in the darkness, Okay. Uh, let's take a look at each one of them, because they all have a little different nuance. John starts off with, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, then we lie and do not practice the truth. So who is the person that John is talking about here? This is the person who claims to be a Christian, claims to walk with God and know God, but has embraced a lifestyle or pattern of sin. They walk in darkness. That means that they have given themselves over to a set to a sin or set of sins as a way of life. They're not just in the darkness for a little bit. They're living lives of darkness, which means they are persistently and doggedly and tenaciously choosing a lifestyle they know that God does not want. Um, 
D.A. Carson, who is a professor, uh, was learning German, and he found an African guy that was a really bright African guy studying to be an engineer who also wanted to learn German. So they started meeting together to learn German together. And they actually knew each other from a, a missionary over in Africa. There was a connection there. And as they're studying German, uh, D.A. Carson came to find out that this African, uh, this, he was brilliant by this African guy. His, his wife was over in London studying to become a doctor. She was also brilliant, uh, but they were separated for a while. Came to find out that this, that this guy was uh, going and visiting a prostitute two or three times a week. Uh, and, and so D.A. Carson said, hey, um, uh, how would you feel if your wife over in London was visiting, uh, had relations with a guy? And he said, oh, without batting an eye, he said, well, I'd kill her. And he was serious. And, and then D.A. Carson said, well, isn't that a double standard? And he said, well, you don't, you don't, wait a second, you don't understand my culture. You see, in my culture, it's okay for a man to have as many relations as he wants. But if a woman does that, oh, no, we'll kill her. And, and, then, and then Carson said, wait a second here. I, I, I mean, I understand your culture. I know your culture. I've been to your country. But weren't you raised by Christians? Aren't you, aren't you a Christian? He said, oh, yeah, I believe. But God's going to forgive me because that's his job. So here we have an example of someone who has a regular pattern of, of sin. They are walking in darkness. And, and John is here telling us that uh, people that are doing this, who are living a double life, um, that, they, that they are actually living a life of deception. You know, the darkness here is it's twofold. It's what they're doing is dark. But they're also walking in darkness in the sense that they are living a double life. Uh, so there's no integrity. There's no matching. The word integrity comes from the word integer, where we get the word whole. The idea is that to, to be a person of integrity is not to have different parts. The part that shows up on Sunday morning and the part that shows up Monday through Saturday, Monday through Friday, right? And that's what John's getting at is that if you are walking with God, God is with you, because God is spirit, God is with you 24-7, and if you're really connecting with God, and God is righteous, you can't just simply switch gears like that. The Holy Spirit's going to be like, no, 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 right? And so, darkness comes into our lives when we take on another life, a private life, a place in our world where we don't share it with others, or we're not, we're not honest about that. Maybe we set up an account that we're not telling our spouse about. We're just kind of hiding that money in case, who knows, opportunity might come. Or maybe we've given ourselves to watching something online we shouldn't be watching. Maybe, it's, maybe we're walking in darkness. Maybe you're, you're looking at pornography on a regular basis. Or maybe you're, you're addicted to your phone. Maybe uh, you're regularly engaging in gossip, but then you show up at church just like, oh, hi, brother, hi, sister. Or we're claiming to follow Christ, but we've actually organized our schedules such that we have no time to connect with God throughout the day. That's a really subtle one that I've been fighting since my life. I went through a busy season where it was like, I got to figure out how to connect with God. Otherwise, my life's a lie as Pastor Robert. So there's lots of ways in which we can have a private life that doesn't match our public life, Right? And this is living in darkness. And if there's a gap between your public life and your private life, that is where the darkness resides. So the first person that John's talking about 
is the person that acknowledges the existence of sin, but they're denying that it makes them estranged and alienated from God. But the second heretical claim is arguably worse than the first. John goes on, if we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now note that sin is in the singular, and this is the person who denies the very fact of sin. Romans 3.23 is clear, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What is sin? Well, sin is, is, is very simply, uh, it's simply not to reflect God, not to be acting out as we were meant to be, which is God's, God's image bearers. You think about it, when you say we are made in God's image, it means we are meant to reflect God. We are made to reflect God's honesty, God's goodness, God's love, God's kindness, God's patience, God's righteousness, God's integrity. We are made to reflect. That's actually our natural state. I know it seems kind of almost weird we're such sinners, but it's like, no, that's actually normal. And, and the Bible tells us that, yeah, we were meant to be mirrors that reflect this God of light, but we are cracked mirrors. That's why we, we can't... And, and that's what we did this morning. We confessed we're cracked mirrors. So nobody has ever reflected God correctly. Actually, there was one person, right? We know. You know, Dallas Willard says Jesus was the only normal person. I like that. We tend to think of Jesus as some, like, moral rock star. He actually was the first person that wasn't a cracked mirror and could reflect the righteousness of God. Um, I guess we could say the original couple was, but then their mirror got cracked, so... So the first person acknowledged the existence of sin, but denies that it's made them estranged from God. The second person denies the very existence of sin in their lives. I don't even have sin. I don't have sin operating. I'm, you know, what is sin? The third person acknowledges that sin breaks our fellowship with God and that sin exists as part of the human condition. But notice what do they, they do. They claim they simply have reached a place where they're now above sin. Look at this. If we say we have not sinned, then we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John Stott says, we may not be dealing with the same heretics that John, oh, sorry, John Stott says, this is the most blatant of the, that was my notes I read, but this is what John Stott actually says. This is the most blatant of the three denials. The heretics claimed that their superior enlightenment rendered them incapable of sinning. We, we don't know, need to go into all the history of Gnosticism and you know, all the background of why they thought this. Uh, but, there are still movements afoot. I know, I, I actually got sucked into one when I was a young boy. And it was a certain form of theology, I don't need to go into the whole history of it, but it basically taught that we could have victorious Christian living where we kind of like went into warp speed as a Christian and just kind of, oh, sin, see you later. And all you had to do is come to a place of complete surrender. Let me tell you, I spent about three years trying to figure out what complete surrender is, because leaving sin behind sounded pretty good to me. I would seek after it with tears, and I would, you know, I was doing everything I could to figure out, I mean, I was talking, so the complete surrender, exactly when and how, and at some point I just came to a realization like, you know what? And it was a big relief, to be honest, that in this life, the principle of sin never leaves us as Christians, right? But these are the people that, that say, oh no, I left sin behind. Don't even, you know, and there's other theologies out there. There's some people say, I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Kind of, I'm on a whole other warp load than, ever, you know, here I am. Or, or you know, I've, uh, I've been perfected in love. You know, I've just reached this place through purgation. I'm a saint or whatever. No. If we say we have not sinned, then we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So let me make some observations about life in the darkness. Three observations. Number one, 
All three of these negative statements are a subtle variation of the same theme, namely the denying the reality of sin. Um, and not only that, it involves speaking. If we say, if we say, if we say. So this is about, this is about us uh, denying the reality of sin in our lives. And it's interesting that words are so critical for that. You know, words are so important. They, we can create counter-realities with words. And sin oftentimes enters in and we live with justifying sin by virtue of words. Words we tell to ourselves are to others. It's only a little bit of money. No one will miss it. This is the last time I'm going to do this. Just one more time. At least I'm not like so-and-so. It's not me. It's her. Look at the woman you gave me, Lord. See, this is a call for sober evaluation about the kind of things we tell ourselves if we say. And if you want to find the sin in your life, you have to pay attention to the words you're telling yourself, which, by the way, then end up, you end up telling others. As the book of James says, life and death are in the power of the tongue. Another thing I see, number two, another observation, sin destroys relationship. Look at sin's multiple impacts. First, we lie to others and do not practice the truth. Then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then we make God a liar and his word is not in us. Did you notice that? The threefold impact of sin. See, sin is an alienation that destroys our relationship with others, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship with God. It's a form of alienation. And so, and, so, and this is part of what the Bible teaches about sin, is that sin never resides in one compartment. It doesn't stay fixed there. I, I love all those shows about serial killers. I probably shouldn't say that because I'm a pastor. But one of the things, you, they always do the psychological evaluation of these creepy people, and it always turns out that they were doing something really weird by themselves before they went out and killed a bunch of people, right? Something they shouldn't be doing. It's all connected. And I know that in our contemporary politics, we're told to turn a blind eye towards somebody's moral character, both from the right and the left. But the reality is, is that if somebody is doing something in their private life, if they're not fulfilling their vows to their wife in their private life, why in the world would they fulfill their vows as an elected official? The Bible does not have such a naive view of humanity that we are actually integrated and we can't keep sin kind of locked into one place. Sin has this kind of rupturing effect. So sin destroys relationship, has multiple impact. And then look at this. Another thing I notice is sin is a kind of ignorance. It's a kind of ignorance. All three of these descriptions, there's somebody who's not getting it. Do not practice the truth. The truth is not in us, and his word is not in us. In all three examples, sin is tied to an inability to an inability, and mostly inability to know. They are out of practice. The truth has not truly entered into their embodied knowledge. God's word is not inside them in an affective, tacit way of knowing. I know we're not supposed to say that sin is ignorance, but sin always includes a certain level of not seeing. It is a blindness. Sin brings its own ignorance. A friend of mine who is a physician named Stacy told me that as she oversees residencies, uh, doctors coming in doing the residency, and she said it's very important that they not only get the theory, so what they'll do is they'll take them, they'll give them the theory, okay, we're going to do this little operation, uh, we're going to do this, we're going to get the gallbladder, blah, 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 with these steps. So they get all the information, but in their mind, this person doesn't know yet. 
Then they make them walk through the operation with a senior physician guiding them the whole way. And then they take them back out and they say, tell me what you just did. Teach me how you do that. Walk me step by step. See, knowledge has multiple levels. And the danger is, is that sin actually uh, can lead us to believe that we know God's word. And, you know, if you have Bible verses memorized, you're kind of like, it's really dangerous to be a pastor or to be a theologian. Like, you have all this knowledge, but sin works at a deeper level, on the level of the affect, the imagination. And, but God's word also, by the way, is implicit here, is something that we can get grounded in us. We can actually come to, we can know God's word such that we see the world differently. I remember I, this is, I'm a little bit off subject, but I remember I studied the book of Ephesians for about four years, one time with a group of guys. We just went through the book, very slow. Uh, and, and I memorized the book of Ephesians. And after that experience, like, I had my Ephesians glasses. Like, marinating in that book for so long, like, at one point, it was like, oh, my gosh. I could, I could see. God's word was in me, and I could see it. And, and, it, and as a result of trying to live and obedience to some of the stuff in Ephesians, I was able to practice things. So that's something else we see going on here. Sin is a kind of ignorance. All right. John doesn't leave us here in the darkness, neither will I. Um, so let's move over to the light. Some of you guys are like, give me the good news, Reverend. All right, let's do this. Life in the light. Quickly, three things. John, um, again, couples these statements of darkness with three statements of what life in the light is first. And first, we read this. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, then we lie, do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sins. So what does it mean to walk in the light? To walk in the light is a habitual, consistent response that is characterized by harmonizing every facet of our life with the presence of God. It involves a habitual, daily response where we're constantly connecting with God. And it involves rhythms, and we did a whole series on rhythms, so I'm not going to go into all that. But it means that there's periods of prayer in your life. I just read a, a, a lawyer uh, was talking about his life falling. He was a missionary, then he became attorney, was called to be an attorney. And when he got into that world, his life fell apart because he was so busy. So busy. And so he had to completely rethink how to connect with God. And so he, would, three, he said, three times a day, I'm going to get down on my knees somewhere. And I'm going, to, I'm going to force my body, I'm going to get it to, like, acknowledge Jesus as king, you know. So he developed this whole rule of life. And so it involves rhythms, um, regular times with Christian friends, people that you can be honest with and say, this is what's going on, right? Um, practicing Sabbath and having times of regular scripture intake. Um, so walking in the light means that we're connecting with God, but also it's something you can't do alone. If we walk in the light, if we come and we connect with God, it's something that then draws us towards other Christians. It draws us towards other people. It makes us open and honest. Uh, one commentator writes, walking in the light is to have a penetrating revelation of who we are as those who've been cleansed by Jesus Christ, which then humbles us and makes us welcoming of everyone without partiality or elitism. It generates sincerity, forgiveness, and grace because we have received the greatest of all graces. That's what happens when we're connecting with God on a regular basis. We become people of hospitality and grace and forgiveness. Uh, and that just creates love, 
right? If you have a bunch, if you have, if you have a bunch of people that are coming together like, man, God has just loved me so much, and you've just, they feel loved. Like, love generates love, right, as we're walking in the light. Uh, so, uh, that kind of transparency with God results in transparency with each other, and genuine relationship occurs, which, by the way, that's, I mean, that, that was the message that Josh is like, when he preaches the message, preach all about transparency in the church. I'm like, man, that is a whole other sermon, dude. But yes, we need that. We need, churches are places where, you know, we show up and we act a certain way on a Sunday morning, and then there's this whole other world underneath. And we've got to have transparency. And so darkness is going to come into our lives if we don't have other Christians that we are genuinely connecting with. All right, number two. Let's keep it moving. If we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, then he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remember, this is the person that says, I don't have any sin, I'm not a broken mirror. In response, walking light is that we live a life of confessing our sin. That is actually, confessing your sin, that's actually this idea of ongoing confession. Walking the light involves a lifestyle of repentance where we acknowledge we are a sinner, and that's, that's where we acknowledge that we're broken mirrors. We do it on a regular basis. That's why we have this confession, this standard confession, which is a beautiful confession. You know, we're on a regular basis. So if we walk in the light, um, then we are going to be living lifestyles of repentance. And look what it says. It says that he's faithful and just. God is faithful to remove our sins. It's from the east and the west. It's, you're not going to show up and be like, God, please for my sin. He's like, mm, not this time, one too many. He does it again and again and again. He has set his mind on doing that for us. And he is just. And what does that mean that he's just? In other words, he can be just and justifier because of Jesus. Just going to get more into that at the end here. To forgive in other words, there's a debt that we owe to God. And to cleanse, there's a stain we need to have cleansed when we confess. And all of this, by the way, is conditioned on confession. The forgiveness and the cleansing we receive from God is conditioned on confession. It's not automatic. If you have never confessed your sins to God, you're, you are estranged from God. And you need his cleansing and his forgiveness. And you need to confess and say, God, I'm not living like I should. What does confession mean? The word is literally homologia. It means to say the same thing about what you're doing as God says. God, I've been walking in darkness. God, I haven't been living the way I should. Homologia. God, I've been bitter. God, I've been harboring anger. God, I'm like, you've got to confess it. And there's a power. You know, the power of confession, you know, the Bible gives us this way of, it just organizes us, it cleanses us, it gives us a sense of self-realization, a sense of authentication. Confession is darn amazing. And when you have genuine confession, like, whew, it's life-changing. We all know that. The psalmist says, when I, when I did not confess my sin, when I kept it in, it was like a rot in my bones. And I finally was like, what am I doing here? I just need to confess this to God. And he does this, it was like, oh my gosh. Because then you receive the forgiveness and the cleansing. Um, and then, you know, uh, by the way, I love this. Martin Luther says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. See, it's not like the goal is to leave confession behind. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I used to confess. That was back in the 80s, but, you know, now I'm super Christian. 
Quite the opposite. To be a Christian as you grow is to get better and better at genuine confession and genuine repentance. Maturity is somebody that has entered into that life very well. Uh, when you look at the Apostle Paul, you know, we always think Paul was such an amazing Christian. Where did Paul's incredible Christian life come from? In 50 feet, 55 AD, writing to the Corinthians, he called himself the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church of God. So he's the least of the apostles. There's, you know, 12, 13, okay. In 60 AD, five years later, roughly, writing to the Ephesians, he refers to himself as the very least of all the saints, all Christians. So he went from the least of the apostles to the least of the saints. And then at the end of his life, he tells Timothy he considers himself the foremost of all sinners everywhere. You know what was happening? He was living a life of confession and repentance. And as you do that, you become more and more aware. Um, But how do we do that? We can only take that up, that lifestyle of confession and repentance, if we remember the good news that he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And, we, and there's more to remember. Look at this, how he ends it. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. But if anyone does sin, then we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Two beautiful words in here that are also motivate us to lifestyle, confession, and repentance. We have an advocate. That word there is paraclete. Jesus here sends the Holy Spirit as a paraclete here, but it's reminded that we also have an advocate with the Father. I mean, what that means is that Jesus the righteous stands by the Father's side, and when we confess, he says, this one's one of mine, I paid for their sins. And he is pleading our case before the Father, and by the way, the Father always hears Jesus' case because he's absolutely righteous And then there's this word propitiation. Propitiation just rolls off the lips, right, Pam? (laughs) We're like, that's a tough word. We're talking about this. What is this word propitiation? People don't like this word. I'm just going to be honest. People are like, well, this seems like an angry God. You have to propitiate. You have to appease God. You know, God the Father, you know, he was filled with wrath, and then he punished his son, and no, 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 no. Propitiation does mean to appease the wrath of God. It means to make us clean. But who is the one that sends the Son? Will the Son and the Father agree to come together to deal, to deal with the great displeasure that our sin gives? And you say, oh, I don't know about that. You know what? Have you never been so angry because you want something else for somebody? And you've got to deal with that anger because of what they've done, but you love them enough so that you deal with that anger? The propitiation of Jesus Christ was God's unrelentingness to decide to accept us in spite of ourselves. We were enemies, and God is like, I am not giving up on you. I'm so angry, but I'm not giving up on you. And no matter what it costs to bring you back to myself, even even if me and, and my beloved son have to do something to make it so you can be acceptable in my sight. We will do that. That is the love of God. That is the love of God. So where are you at this morning? Are you walking in the light? Are you walking in the light? Do you have a private life that you showed up to church with this morning? 
that you think is hidden. You know, it's not hidden. The God, God is a God of light. He sees it. He, it's all going to be revealed. So I want to ask you, are you confessing? Are you living a life of confession? Again, what is going to lead us to that? Seeing our advocate, the one who's crossed heaven down to earth in order to pay for our sins so that we can be honest that we need a Savior and that the Savior has come that we might have life. That, my friends, is good news. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this good news. Lord, that we do not need to deny the fact that we are broken people, that we do not need to hide our, uh, Lord, our failings and our uh, inadequacies, but Lord, that you love us. Lord, we do not want to live lives in the darkness. We want to walk in light. We want to walk in the light. We want to walk with you. We want to walk with each other. We pray, Lord, that you will lead us into a deeper walk with you through our Savior Jesus.